I'm pleased to be able to introduce our guest speaker this morning for this morning's message. I uh, had the privilege of a short conversation with him earlier, being the first time I've had the opportunity to meet him, though he might be familiar to many of you. And uh, as is usually the case when you're speaking with brothers or sisters in Christ, you find out the world's a lot smaller than you thought each time you do that. And I found out there's several people that we know, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing from him. But let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, if you've never met. In the 1980s, Charles and his wife Dawn Pettit served a church in Atlanta, Georgia that they were privileged to plant. And also for over a decade, they served the West Indies where churches were planted, national leaders were trained. But in 2002, Dr. Pettit was chosen to be the president of Piedmont International University in Winston-Salem. Under his leadership, the university has seen enrollment growth over 250%. There are more students enrolled there than have ever been. And uh, this is drawing from 90 countries and all 50 states. The university has also seen the addition of a variety of undergraduate and graduate degree programs, as well as numerous online education options. Uh, But you may also know that Dr. Pettit led the organization of many mergers. Spurgeon Baptist Bible College, Atlantic Baptist Bible College, Tennessee Temple University, Southeastern Bible College, and John Wesley University are now merged with Piedmont International University and now all under one roof. So Dr. Pettit's ministry is deep and wide. It's my privilege to introduce him to you and glad to have him as our guest. Please make him feel welcome. Thanks, sir. All right. I can listen to that again. That was fun to hear. Um, I feel tired just hearing all that. It's a, it's a delight to be back. Always love coming over here. And as he said, this was our first time to actually get to know each other. And I uh, had a few minutes back there. And uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed those few minutes and hearing about uh, how you have such a respect for this place and what it has stood for. And yet I felt that I have, we see a leader here who's going to take that foundation and with a group around him, see that impact really grow and expand. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the years going forward. I uh, had someone in the hallway uh, call attention to something I must have said years ago here, maybe the first time I came. And that is, I'm often confused with John Elway. So it's amazing what people remember. This was the before I had the beard, I looked like John Elway. And, uh, you know, I wish people could remember my sermons like that. That would just be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but now everywhere I go, now that I have a little uh, facial hair, people tell me that I remind them of uh, that, uh, that Donald Sutherland character. Uh, that, uh, what is that movie? Hunger Games. President Snow and Hunger Games. Is that true? All right. <laughs> wow. I have people walk up to me in airports and places like that and say, has anyone ever told you you look like that character from Hunger Games? And I'll say, Jennifer Lawrence? I don't believe it at all. <laughs> but uh, I guess you can't help it. Wow. All right. Well, now that I have something for you to remember when I come back, I uh, am really grateful to this church. 
Uh, you have partnered with Piedmont for many, many years. Uh, we couldn't exist uh, without support of churches, and uh, you have been with us in that endeavor for a long, long time. And so what I'd like to do today is take a few minutes and just give you a report on what's going on at Piedmont. You actually heard a really good summary just a second ago. I'll give you a little more detail uh, because I think you need to know where your money goes and what you're doing. And so I'll give you a report. It might feel a little bit like uh, an infomercial because it is a little bit of an infomercial. But uh, we are a Christian university and we have served uh, the body of Christ for a long, long time. And these days, these recent days, that has become really exciting on lots of fronts. You heard about a number of mergers for a long time, uh, maybe our first uh, 50, 60 years, Piedmont was a regional school. We mainly served North Carolina. Most of our students came from the Triad, the Triangle, Charlotte, uh, and that was great. There were lots of schools like us that served communities or states, and uh, we were very happy with that. But through all these mergers, uh, we have seen a big change to the influence of Piedmont and a lot of other benefits. I mean, I, I was just sitting here looking at the PVs and thinking, if it were not for a merger with Spurgeon Baptist Bible College, I don't think I'd have ever met you. Uh, but his family was from that Lakeland area where Spurgeon Baptist Bible College was. I'm not sure all the connections or how we actually got to know each other. But through that, he ended up at Piedmont, and then he ended up here, and he ended up as a missionary. And so it's interesting, all the other things that have come out of pulling these schools together that are just huge and significant. And almost every merger has given us a financial boost, a student numbers boost, and usually new degree programs, whatever their main programs or flagship programs were, would become part of the collection of the entire university. And so the expansion started taking place. That very first merger gave us enough funding from a, the sale of a campus in Lakeland, Florida area, Mulberry to be more specific. Uh, we had funding to launch a great online program and we had money to do it well with excellence and that caused expansion to take place as you heard all 50 states and I think they said 90 countries I think we're actually up to 100 since then and our one of our goals is to obey what we have in clear writing in Matthew it says go teach all nations you don't always get it in black and white but in this case we got it in black and white God said teach all nations well we're an educational institution and so we decided we would try our best to obey that. So our goal is to graduate key, gospel-multiplying, self-reproducing, highly influential Christian leaders from every nation on the planet. And we're about halfway there. And we got halfway there without trying very much. And now we're actually trying. God has enabled us to set up international campuses. First of all, in Egypt, uh, we set up a campus uh, in partnership with an organization called Baptist Equipping Nationals, where we had uh, dozens and dozens of Arab speaker, Arabic speakers travel to Alexandria, Egypt, so they could earn a master's degree in a biblical studies field, so they could become church planters and effective pastors. Uh, it's easier said than done to launch a campus in Egypt. You go try to get approval in Cairo for a Christian university in Egypt. It's easier said than done. And then try to get accreditation to approve that campus. Easier said than done. And then we decided to provide it tuition-free for all the students. And so we sent the 
faculty over and they would teach the classes. People would come in from multiple countries and they would study. The impact has been huge. My favorite moment after almost two decades of presidential leadership at the university happened at the event of our first graduation in Egypt. So we were at a restaurant on the Mediterranean Sea in Alexandria. We were celebrating this first cohort, dozens and dozens who had finished this master's degree. And they were uh, taking turns sharing some testimonies. Well, they were all speaking in Arabic. And the room full of people were Arabic speakers. And so someone was just whispering the English translation into my ear. So I was catching little bits and pieces. And then a man stood up and spoke in English, one of our bilingual students. And he said nice things about Piedmont and thanked me for what we'd done. He said, this uh, series of courses has been transformational to our ministries. Now you have to keep in mind that this was a room full of primarily Coptic Christians and a few other denominations. There really weren't a lot of our stripe over there, but these folks had come and they had trained and they had learned our literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, and they said this was transformational to us. Uh, he said, uh, and, and, and probably you don't even know how much it has impacted us. He said, let me give you an example. He said, 1,800 years ago, in this very city of Alexandria, allegorical interpretation was introduced to the Christian faith. And you know the difference, right? Allegorical versus literal. Literal interpretation means you take the Bible at its face value. If God says it, you just believe it the way he wrote it. This allegorical approach says you take your opinions into the Bible and try to make the Bible twist to match your opinions. It's isogesis instead of exegesis. Instead of letting the Bible speak to you and tell you, you tell the Bible. And you can become very fanciful. You can make the Bible say anything, right? He said, that was introduced in this city. And I was thinking, well, yes, I, I hadn't put it together. I'm sitting in Alexandria. He said, from these courses, we've learned that most of the church of Jesus Christ around the world has never recovered. He said, we never heard anything else until now, until Piedmont brought a literal approach back to us. He said, let me give you another example of, or an example of how this has transformed us. He said, four years ago, you would have been unable to get anyone in this room to say anything good about our neighbors to the north. But now that we understand a literal approach to the scriptures, every man in this room is praising God for the blessings that will come to Israel during the millennial kingdom. Hallelujah is right. Think about that. Arabic speakers in Egypt praising God for blessings coming to Israel. You don't see that on the front pages very much. But if you'll take the Bible as it's written, it's transformational. We set up a second branch campus, this time in Bangladesh. We operate there to this very day. We eventually transitioned to the other leaders out of after two cohorts in Egypt. They asked us to set up a campus in the DR in Spanish. And we decided that instead of doing that, 
we would set up a Spanish online program. And so we took a biblical studies degree and now it's available entirely online and entirely in Spanish. And we've had students graduate and be enrolled from all across Latin America that's growing all the time. We're in the process of translating a second master's degree into Spanish, this time our Master of Arts in Ministry degree. Uh, we are subsidizing it with a 75% scholarship to anyone in the Spanish-speaking world that wants to take it. The impact is huge. I can tell you a lot of stories of the impacts of these leaders who get this training and then train hundreds and hundreds of others. We had a grant that came to us and we translated a, a master's degree into Portuguese. And as of January, that is now being offered in six different countries uh, in the Portuguese speaking world. We had a $1 million grant come to us uh, and much of that has been designated to translate into China and Chinese. If you want to think about a main prayer request for Piedmont, I would ask that you would pray that God would open the hearts of the people who sit in the central government in Beijing. Our goal is to have central government permission to launch our degree programs in China. Um, and it seems impossible that the communist government of China would give that to a Christian university like us, but I think that if they'll do it in Egypt, they might just do it in China. So please pray with us that that would happen. And so we have graduated lots of folks like the Peavies who have gone to the world, and then we kind of put our money where our mouth is, and as a university, we are going to the world to provide this training of key leaders. We've also expanded what we do here in North Carolina. For the longest time, we only train people for pastoral-type programs, Bible, ministry. All of our degrees were in those areas. But with all these mergers, we keep adding more and more other kinds of degree areas. And so we've moved from being a Bible college to a Christian university. We are seeing strong, strong growth in all the degree areas, the Bible ones, the ministry ones, and in all these other ones. Uh, we now have about 50 majors and minors have become a strong Christian university. We have degrees in areas like business administration, American Sign Language, criminal justice. We actually launched that a year ago, and sheriff offices across the state and in other states are signing partnerships with us. We launched our criminal justice program in close partnership with the sheriff of Forsyth County, that's Winston-Salem, uh, just two days ago, Friday, we had a major signing in downtown Charlotte. Sheriff McFadden, the sheriff of Mecklenburg County, uh, signed an agreement with Piedmont. We are becoming the official training partner of the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Department. Many police departments are signing with us. Uh, Tennessee Temple was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We had connections there. The sheriff of that county, which is Hamilton County, <clears throat> recently had a press conference and announced us as a partner. We are seeing an exploding growth in our criminal justice degree program both on campus and online. All these degrees are available both ways. Business analytics, counseling, teacher education, history, information systems, management, public health. Uh, we will be offering uh, nursing degrees by this fall, sports management. We've also seen a lot of expansion at the graduate level. We still have all those seminary degrees, but in addition to that, we have an MBA. We also have business analytics, human resources management, marketing, supply chain, management, a master's in ed. We also have a master's and a PhD in leadership. So we have a, and that's a sampling. 
So a lot of variety, and our goal has been to keep that Christian core and that Bible core in all these degree programs. And I tell folks often, if you or your child or someone you know is getting ready to go to college, you have a choice. You can choose the old path. You can send someone to a college where that university seems to be focused on doing everything they can to turn your child into an agnostic or an atheist socialist and spend a whole lot of money doing it. If you want that option, good news, you're in luck. About 99% of the colleges in America can provide that track for your child and they'll be very, very happy to do it. Or you can choose an extremely affordable, accredited Christian university, get a world-class education taught by some of the, some, we have a Rhodes Scholar, top PhDs, academic excellence at every level, and truly affordable. So you get options. A year of tuition at Piedmont is about $12,000. And by the typical scholarship, most people are down to about $9,000 for the entire year. If you got the full Pell Grant, almost $7,000, you're almost down to free. It's affordable, it's, a flex, it's flexible, it's got a Christian foundation to it. I'll be at the back to take your applications after the service. <laughs> is over. All right, the infomercial is over. All God's people said. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. Let's do what we came to do. With your focus on evangelism, world missions, I wanted to just take one more look at something extremely familiar. The Great Commission, our responsibility to take the gospel to the people around us and to the ends of the earth. I think that if we were all honest, we would all most likely admit there's more we can do, right? If we're all honest, we'd all admit there's probably more we could do to get the gospel to the people around us and to the ends of the earth. So we're going to talk about that. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Let's pray together and look at this for a few minutes. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand your word and then something even harder, just do what it says. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'll ask you... Uh, sort of a silly 
question, silly scenario. What would you think of this scenario? A soldier is being tried. He's at a court-martial. The charge is against him that five times he was ordered to advance in a firefight. And all five times he didn't do it. He hid. Eventually he ran away. And he's not even denying that it happened. But, he says in his own defense, while it is true that I did not charge when ordered to charge, because that was pretty scary, I want you to know that when I was in boot camp, I was the best person in the entire boot camp at shining my boots. <laughs> well, you will be wondering about a defense like that. And the response comes back, yeah, you were good at boot shining, but you didn't fight. In fact, you ran. Well, but also, I have more argument. I have probably read more military strategy books than anybody in this courtroom. Okay. But you didn't fight. Yeah, I know, but I didn't take much initiative in battle, but when we're not in a wartime, I take lots of initiatives on lots of other fronts. In fact, something I'm really good at is giving other people advice about how they should fight. Now, how do you think that court-martial is going to go for him? Probably not very well. <laughs> it's not going to be a good day. You know, someday, all of us who know Christ are going to be at the great court-martial in the sky, <laughs> you might say. I think the Bible calls it the judgment seat or the bema seat. You know, there's two future judgments, right? One where all unbelievers go, horrible day for them, and one where all believers go, horrible day for some of us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says that for some Christians, that judgment day is going to be a day of terror. So think about that. You think you're going to die and go to heaven, this is going to be sweet by and by, but according to 2 Corinthians 5, for some people, it's not going to be so sweet for a while. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about gold, silver, precious stone versus wood, hay, and stubble. Which kind of offering are you going to present? And your eternity, the quality of it, rests on which of those you present. Obviously, you get to heaven by knowing Christ. You can't work your way there. That's all about him. But after you're already on your way to heaven... The differences between believers and, and what their rewards are and what their eternity looks like. Not everybody is going to rule and reign with Christ. Only the faithful Christians will. All Christians will be in heaven, but there's distinctions beyond that. And so we're going to give an account for how well we obeyed the basic command. Charge! Make disciples, evangelize, share the gospel. I mean, this is core to Christianity. Well, Lord, I didn't do much of that, but I was pretty good at being in church faithfully. I read a bunch of Christian books. And unless you think I'm exaggerating about the importance of this one command, 
think about the repetition. Now, I don't know about all of you folks, but I'm a guy that needs to hear it, you know, more than once usually to kind of catch it. <laughs> and if there's anything that Jesus wanted to make abundantly clear to us, it is that the Great Commission really matters to him. This command to go to the world. In fact, if you look at the life of Christ, repeatedly we see that as we hear in different books, like all the Gospels, about Jesus Christ after he was buried and rose again and gets ready after meeting with his disciples for a few days, gets ready to ascend back to heaven and send the Holy Spirit and launch this gospel to the world, right before he ascends back to heaven, he gives them some instructions. You could say these were his last words, in a sense, at least his last words before, before he ascends back to heaven. And he doesn't just, like, hint at it. He gives it to us over and over again. I referenced it a minute ago. At the end of Matthew, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. He talks about seeing them baptized and teaching them, discipling them, helping them to follow the example and commands of Christ. He has an all-nations priority, a gospel to the world. But just in case you missed it in Matthew, he comes back in Mark and says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every person. So it's pretty clear. It needs to be a global thought process. You need to be thinking about, and I actually like this. I look at here at all these flags flying in here, the emphasis that you're having, the heart that you've had. But it also needs to get down to each of us individually. Just in case we don't catch it in Matthew and Mark, in Luke he comes back and says that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached among all nations. And just in case you don't catch it in Matthew and Mark and Luke, he comes back in John, and Jesus says in John, As the Father hath sent me. What's next? So send I you. Now that kind of begs the question. If I'm to be sent like he was sent, then I need to figure out how he was sent, right? As the Father sent me, that's how I'm sending you. Well, John later writes, The Father sent the Son, to be the Savior of the world. He was sent to have a worldwide, a global heart. So send I you. And just in case you don't catch it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he comes back in Acts, the passage we just read, and this time we switch from imperatives, uh, commands, orders, by the way, in all four of those, those are orders, marching orders. But when you get to Acts, he gives it to us in the form of a prophecy, which is fun for me to read because I like being in a prophecy. They got all those movies where, you know, some unsuspecting person finds out that they're kind of the chosen one. <laughs> there was some prophecy like, oh, Yo, you're the one. The prophecy is called for you. Jennifer Lawrence or whatever. But uh, I'm not sure she had a prophecy. But those are kind of fun, little interesting stories, but this is actually real. There's a real prophecy being fulfilled all around us right this minute. 
And it plays out in this Acts chapter 1 passage, much like a lot of those Old Testament prophecies played out. You know, sometimes a prophet would stand up in the Old Testament to give this long-term prophecy. Seventy years from now, this is going to happen. <laughs> and the skeptic would say, nice. <laughs> of course you can make that up. We're not going to be around 70 years from now, so you're probably just making that up. And that doesn't seem very likely anyway. But then the prophet would sometimes give a short-term prophecy. You know, six months from now, this is going to happen. No, that's stupid. That can't happen. Well, then six months later, it would happen exactly as prophesied. And people would say, well, you know what? If that prophecy can come true, then we can rest on that 70-year prophecy too. And here we see something like that playing out. Jesus gives a long-term prophecy that seems unrealistic if you're that baby church with only a handful of members and you're scared to death and you just watched Jesus be crucified on a cross and you don't know if you're going to be next. But he also gives them a short-term prophecy that also seems fairly unrealistic. Look at it a little more closely as we go through it this time. He says in verse 4, he was assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise. So this is a promise or a prediction, something I'm, I'm telling you is going to happen. Now this is a short-term promise. Uh, the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard of me. For John, verse 5, truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Short-term prophecy. There's going to be this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have this new thing. This indwelling is going to take place. This powerful event is going to happen. They're going to be emboldened, encouraged, on fire, courageous. Believe you me, none of them were feeling like that when these words were spoken. Keep in mind, they were still pretty scared. Peter had gotten so scared that he denied the Lord several times in one night, and then he quit the ministry and went back into his fishing business with a lot of other of the disciples. These were a bunch of scared, not sure of themselves, worried people, and now they're being told about some baptism that's going to change everything. Verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> Wrong question. But it shows their ongoing confusion. During the life of Jesus, as these people had been around him for the previous three, three and a half years, he had oft talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what their ears heard? Earthly kingdom right now. This guy who can walk on water, turn water into wine, heal people, raise the dead. He's going to take over Rome. <laughs> that evil force that had come in and occupied, conquered and occupied their country. He's going to kill those Romans. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, and he is going to be the king of the world. Now, they were obviously off by a few years. But that's what they were thinking. And, and they were always arguing about positions of power. Now, I'm going to be prime minister. You know, I'm going to be secretary of state. And they were always jockeying about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were thinking earthly kingdom right here, right now. And instead of overthrowing Rome, 
Rome nails him to a cross. Now, they haven't seen the redemptive side of all that yet. They don't know what we were singing about a few minutes ago. They don't know that blood washes away sin. They didn't know any of that. They weren't thinking that way. They were thinking earthly kingdom. (laughs) And then three days later, resurrection. Jesus comes back to life and he walks out of that tomb. But their thinking really hasn't changed. (laughs) They're still thinking, wow, now we got a guy who can come back from the dead. He can appear and disappear. He can walk through closed doors. (laughs) Now beating Rome looks easier than ever. I I guess right now we're going to go ahead and conquer Rome and set up that kingdom. So they're asking a question, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom? And he said unto them, and by the way, he says this to you and me too. And I would encourage you to look closely at these words. He said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. (laughs) I'm not going to answer the timing of the kingdom question for you. That's still sometime in the future. At least 2,000 years because it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) The next time someone writes a book telling you they've got it all figured out. They know about coronavirus, which power is stronger or weaker right now in the Middle East, what's happening with the price of oil, and therefore Jesus must come back by X. Remember that book? Some of you are not old enough to remember this, but I remember back at like around 1987, somebody wrote a book. 88 reasons why Jesus will come back to this earth in 1988. (laughs) Just guessing, not really sure, but I'm guessing it's out of print now. (laughs) But a lot of people bought it because, man, it had all these reasons, 88 of them, actually. 88 reasons why Jesus must come back and set up his kingdom. When somebody tells you they've got that figured out, either they're wrong or Jesus is. My guess is it's them. I'll tell you when you'll have a king and a kingdom. Actually, I'll say it this way. You'll know you'll have a kingdom when you have a king. When Jesus comes back to this earth and those Arabic speakers in Egypt get excited because Jesus has returned and he sets up a kingdom and they're going to be praising God for the blessings on Israel, you'll know you have a kingdom when you have a king. Meanwhile, we should pay attention to the verse. He says, that is not for you to know. Those times were seasons. But (laughs) there is something you can know. I'm not going to tell you about the timing of the kingdom, but I am going to tell you about two other things. Now look at verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now listen, if that had been you, a little handful of you, gathered in a little upper room, trying to keep out of sight, scared to death. And Jesus says, I'm telling you that you're going to take the gospel to the entire world, even over there in Samaria where they hate you. You might have been tempted to say, yeah, right. Have you noticed how timid we are? 
and how much people hate us and how close we are to being crucified like you. <laughs> Ends of the earth, my eye. <laughs> and you're getting me to have power. You're going to be bold and confident. Uh-huh. Do we look bold and confident? But what happened a few days later on the day of Pentecost? The short-term prophecy came true. The Holy Spirit came, empowered them, emboldened them, connected with signs, once in history signs. And at that point in time, there were people from all over that part of the world who had gathered for the huge feast at Pentecost. And Peter and the others stand up and they preach with boldness and confidence. And God does a miracle. These old rednecks from Galilee that had an accent like crazy stand up and speak in their old rough Galilean accent. And yet people from some 16 language groups understand them perfectly in their own tongue, their own heart language. That was the miracle of tongues in Acts 2. People who speak one language and people in another language understanding perfectly. And in one day, 3,000 people come to know Christ and thousands more in the days following. And I believe those disciples said to themselves, if it can happen like that, if that short-term prophecy can come true, then so can the gospel to the ends of the earth, the uttermost part of the earth. By the way, do you know where the uttermost parts of the earth are? Fuquay Verena. You can't even say that if you're in Israel. I can't say it. I'm from Winston-Salem. I mean, you go to Israel and say, where is about as far away on the planet you can get? Fuquay Verena. We're like on the other. The gospel has come around the world to us. We sometimes think we're the center. We're the ones sending the people to the world. No, we're the receivers. The gospel came all the way around the world to us. We're living in the middle of a prophecy. Amen? So... Go forth proclaiming Christ. Share the gospel with your relatives, with your neighbors, your co-workers, people who also get to see Jesus in you, I hope, as you adorn the gospel. You don't respond to coronavirus like everybody else. You know Jesus. You know Jesus. So you're not going to panic. You're going to love you're going to serve. You maybe you're going to sacrifice. And people are going to say, wow, that's something about that person. I'm not seeing it in the rest of society. And what are they saying about this Jesus? Let me listen to that now. And then you'll be in the prophecy. You'll be right in the middle of it. I remember struggling a couple years out of high school with direction. And my options kind of came down to all in for me with a little sprinkling of Jesus in church or maybe all in for Jesus. Like wrestling. And through a series of things that happened in my life and by God's grace, I reached a point of total surrender to God and said, let's go all in for Jesus. And then I started thinking, like, what is all in? 
Well, there's a lot. I now know there's all kinds of options for all in. But back then, missionary jumped to the top of the list. So I went to Bible college, and I studied cross-cultural communications and Bible. But before I decided which school to enroll in, I traveled around and met people from different schools, a couple of them anyway. And uh, in one of those schools, I met the missions professor. And if you think I'm sarcastic and bad now, you should have met me back then. I was just downright cocky. So I said to him, so if I come to your school, you're going to turn me into a great missionary? (laughs) Yeah, I really said that. Um, (laughs) He said, if you're not being a missionary here, you're never going to be a missionary there. If you're not in love with people and the gospel and you're sharing it now, there's nothing about crossing an ocean that's going to change you. (laughs) The guy kind of rebuked me. And I walked away from that thinking, this is probably the school I need to go to. And that is where I went. While I was enrolled at that school, I started seeing firsthand the reality of sharing the gospel. And that is that it's exactly as the Bible says. It's about sowing, watering, and God giving the increase. Some sow, some water, God gives the increase. Or as the Apostle Paul found out on Mars Hill, he preaches at the top of the philosophical academic world, like modern American academia. It's a place you think you get zero good response. But the Bible says he got three responses. Some said, you're an idiot, get out of here. Some said, that's interesting, we'd like to talk more about that later. And some believed well, if you'll just start sharing the gospel, that's what's going to happen around you if you're not doing it already. Some are going to say, man, you're crazy. Some are going to say, you know, I need to think about that some more. And some are going to come to Christ through that process of sowing, telling maybe you're the first person to tell somebody about the gospel. They've never heard it. You get to sow the seed. Or maybe that seed has been sown and you just get to come around and add some water Bring it along a little bit, knowing that God's going to give the increase. And sometimes you get to be there when the increase is given. At that Bible college, they pushed evangelism a lot, but I was very timid. I had moved from a dairy farm in the middle of nowhere, Virginia, to downtown Atlanta. It was like shock to my system. I had a friend named Peter Tubbs. And Peter kind of took me under wing to teach me how to witness. This was back in the days of the door knocking. Go down the street and knock on every door. Hand out tracts, invite people to church, witness. Unnerving. I go down the streets of Decatur, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta, knocking on doors. After watching him do it for a while, my job was to pray, his job was to talk. He said, all right, we've done this a few times now. Today we'll go out and, and you'll, you'll try. I don't think I'm ready yet. No, you, it, I think you're ready. We finally got to a house, knocked on the door, heard footsteps coming. Terror sets in. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Peter, you, you have to do it. Okay. We did that for several houses. We kept saying I would do it on the next house. <laughs> we knocked on another door. 
God, please don't let anybody be home. <laughs> if they are, please let them slam the door. Footsteps. I'm sorry, I can't. Peter's running for the street. <laughs> door opens. Lady says, how may I help you? Um, we're from the church. Trying to talk to people about Jesus. You don't hear that, do you? I did better than that in my sales job, just for the record. Actually, I would like to hear about Jesus. <laughs> Come on in. Her name was Mary. There's probably never in the history of the world been a person more ready to be saved than Mary. As in... We were taught back then to use the Romans Road approach. You would go through Romans 3 and Romans 5 and Romans 10, 9, and 10. I'm trying to go through that. At some point in time, Mary begins to cry. She said, well, I've actually heard all that a lot. In the last several months, some things have happened in my life, and I've actually started going back to church. I was just sitting here this morning thinking it's probably time for me to make my decision. You think I could just pray now? And Mary bowed her head there by her little coffee table in her living room and trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. I realized that day more than ever that while it's okay to try to be persuasive and be wise about your approach, it's really about the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Somebody had done a lot of sowing, a lot of watering. I just happened to be there on the day it was time to pick the fruit, as it were. Some sow, some water, God gives the increase. Um, in those early days, I was terrified that somebody would get me off my script, my Romans Road script. And every now and then, we'd have some interesting adventures. Uh, I had another friend, a deacon of the church, we would go out knocking on doors. I'm glad I learned better approaches than that. <laughs> but... We went to a house, and it was his turn to talk. And so I was sitting there listening to him explain the gospel, and I'm just praying. But her kids kept running in and interrupting. And every second, they're coming in and asking for something, and she's getting distracted. He's having to kind of start over. And I finally asked, would it be okay if I took the kids out here on the back uh, porch here and back steps and uh, show them some magic tricks? Oh, please show us magic tricks. So we went out on the back steps. And uh, I used to do a little gospel magic, so I had a few, but I didn't have any props with me. I could only do my coin tricks and stuff like that. And so a couple other kids came over from another house or two nearby, and like I'm talking to them, and I'm making a coin disappear, and a few coins disappear, and I'm trying to make it as slow as I possibly can. And I kind of run out of tricks, and so uh, they're ready to go back inside. And I said, wait, 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 wait. I'm trying to think of something. I said to this one boy, I said, you know what? I can make your head disappear. <laughs> You can't make my head disappear. I can make your head disappear. Do it. I said, well, you know, you're going to look really silly without a head, and your friends are going to laugh at you. Do it, do it, do it. So I had this boy come up. Don't tell anybody that I did this. Um, I had this boy come up, and I made him turn around where he was looking at his friends. I was at the back of him on the little steps there. And I basically mouthed to the friends to laugh. So when I pretended to make his head disappear, they would all laugh. So they, I think they got the point. So I made a big deal about this, and I finally said, all right, you sure you want to do this? Yeah, do it, do it, do it. So I said, abracadabra, and his friends went, oh, your head is gone. 
The boy goes back into the house screaming, Mommy, Mommy, my head is gone, my head is gone, help me. I'm not really sure we brought her to Christ that day. <laughs> but evangelism is much more exciting than not doing evangelism. I can tell you that right now. You know, evangelism is like a lot of other things. First few times you do it, it's kind of hard. You feel a little uncomfortable. You might get off track, get a little embarrassed. But if you just keep doing it, after a while you just get comfortable in your own skin. It's okay. And you're accustomed to what's going to happen. Sowing and reaping. I actually uh, came over here to the Raleigh area a few weeks ago, and I was mad at my administrative assistant because I had a flight to Atlanta and then on to some other place. And so we always go from Green over to the GSO airport, about 20 minutes from my house. But for whatever reason, she booked me out of RDU. So I drive all the way to Raleigh to fly back over Winston-Salem to get to Atlanta. So I get on the plane. And uh, I'm sitting by this guy, and you know, in our modern day, everybody goes to the earbuds, and you know, it's a nice, quiet trip. But this guy was chatty. And uh, we're sitting there on the tarmac and just waiting to leave the gate, and he's chatting. He tells me he's a diesel mechanic, and he started a business uh, with diesel trucks and stuff that he operates. And he was on his way, I think, to Memphis to pick up a truck that was broken down. He had to go get it and fly, drive it back home, I guess. And I had bought some diesel equipment around my house. I own about 50 acres, and I actually bought an excavator and a skid steer to clear my land. So uh, I learned to drive my excavator on YouTube, so you don't want to be around me when it happens. <laughs> and, uh, and so I started asking him about diesel things and about my equipment, and I was getting a really good education. And after we had talked for a while, and we're finally taxiing out, pretty short flight over to Atlanta. And I said to him, all right, well, since we're talking, can I just ask you about your faith? <laughs> well, sure, I'm not scared to talk about anything, but I'm telling you, I can tell you this, I despise organized religion because it is full of corruption and abuse. It's got a horrible history. I hate organized religion. And I thought, we've well, not been in any churches I've been in because none of them would be called organized, and maybe other things are not organized. <laughs> what I actually said to him was, you and Jesus have something in common. He said, really? What's that? And I said, well, both of you hate when corruption enters into organized religion. I spent, he spent three and a half years on this earth, and it was the organized religion that gave him the hardest time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had allowed all sorts of corruption to enter into their world. And they became known more about who they wanted to control than who they wanted to love and serve. And so Jesus not only didn't like all of that and called attention to it, those are the people that demanded his crucifixion. It was organized religion who led the crucifying chants. And so if you hate organized religion when it gets full of corruption, then you're like Jesus. Well, I never thought about it that way. Okay, can I tell you a little bit more about Jesus? Well, sure. We got to talk about Jesus all the way till we were taxiing up to the gate in Atlanta. As we got up to leave, I said, do you have a Bible? Could I send you a Bible? He said, I got one somewhere. I'm pretty sure I can find it. I said, would you promise me that you'll go home and read the book of Romans? And he stuck out his hand and said, I promise I read the book of Romans. I just sowed some seed. I'll be shocked, shocked if that man isn't in heaven. I even said to him, 
You know, I'm not supposed to be on this flight. I'm supposed to be in Greensboro, really, because my crazy administrative assistant, Stephanie, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> For whatever reason, didn't put me on an airplane out of Greensboro. She made me drive all the way over here so I could fly back over Greensboro. And I said, I was just sitting here stewing. But this is a divine appointment. I said, I'm guessing you're sitting beside the only ordained minister on this airplane. This can't be chance. God brought us here together. Got a chance to sow some seed. <laughs> With Mary, I was there when God gave the increase. With a diesel mechanic, I was there to do some sowing. I'll tell you a quick story about the day I was there to just add some water. It's kind of recent. I had an appointment with a uh, major business leader in Winston-Salem, very wealthy man, doing my other full-time job, begging for the university. It's not original with me, but I wouldn't mind having that verse on my tombstone as well, Dawn. Uh, and the beggar died. Uh, but... <laughs> So I had an appointment. It's a huge complex, and I was told which place to park and which door to enter. And come to find out, I went on one floor, and the CEO that I was going to meet was way over in a corner of the building, way up on, it was on some other floor. And it's a very secure location. You have to be escorted at every minute. And so I came in that front door, and I waited. And a lady walked up to me. I'll call her Susan, not really her name. Came up, hi, I'm Susan. I'm going to take you back to the CEO's office. And as we shook hands, she also told me that she was married to Debbie. Hmm. You know, I've never met anyone before who just told me who they were married to as we shook hands. She wants to tell me that she's married to a woman to see what kind of reaction she's going to get out of me, this guy from this Christian university over there. And so I said, well, Susan, nice to meet you. And we started walking through all these hallways and down and up and whatever. Three times before we get to the office, she tells me she's married to a woman. In different ways, she tells me the same thing. The third time, I said, Susan, stop. You've told me three times about being married to Debbie. How long have you and Debbie been married? We've been married three years. I said, I said that's nothing. I've been married 38 years. I said, you've got a long ways to go to catch up with me. And she looked at me like that. Was not ex I was not expecting that kind of response from a person like you. We walked on into the CEO's office, and to my surprise, he kept her in the office. He put us both on a couch over here, and he's on the other side of his desk. I don't know much about him, except I just feel fortunate to have a meeting with him, and I'm hoping that one day he'll be a donor. And I did what I always do. I started telling my God stories about Piedmont and about our growth and what God is doing over there at that school called Piedmont. I don't know if he's going to throw me out or what he, I don't know what he's going to think. I have a, my suspicions right here. At some point in time, he pointed at me and says, it sounds like the spirit of God is at work at your university. Oh, this guy must be a believer. And then he points at her next to me. And Susan, you and I both know that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, has been at work in your life. And she said, yes, sir. As you know, I've been in a dark place for a long time, and only in the last few months has that light started turning on. I do think God is doing something in my life. 
as we got all finished with the meeting, I got ready to leave. He said, wait a second. Uh, that initiative that you talked about sounds like something right up my alley. Would you consider letting me go ahead and giving you 75000 toward that? I said, I have considered it. The answer is yes. <laughs> we stepped out of his office, and Susan said, did that man just give you $75,000? I said, sound like that to me, like that to me. She said, well, he's never done that before. What did you say? I need to learn that skill. I said, it's like we said, the spirit of God is at work. As we walked all that thing back out to the main entrance, our conversations were friendly and congenial. We got to the door to leave, and I stuck out my hand to shake her hand goodbye. She grabbed me, pulled me close, put her other arm around my shoulder, and in my ear said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Every time I have seen her since, she's hugged me. Come to find out she leads a major industry herself and works in both fields. Our development director was at a meeting recently and sent me a, a text and a picture of the two of them. I just met this Susan. I told her that I work for you. She started crying and said, tell you hello. I think it was just like a bit of truth and grace moment. We're not going to throw away the standards, these standards. We're going to be gracious to all people. It works really well with the gospel and the Great Commission. I'll be shocked if Susan isn't in heaven. I said at the beginning, if we're all honest, we'd admit there's more we could do to get the gospel out around us and around the world. So I have one last question. Are we honest? Let's pray. Father, this is uh, easier to preach than it is to live. Help us all to live it. Help us to have the gospel at the tip of our tongue and at the tip of all of our responses and plans for the world around us. Thank you that we're in the middle of a prophecy obeying the orders, the marching orders. Help us to please you. In Christ's name, amen. Pastor.